everyone and welcome to Disabilities Not a Bar. As always, I'm your co-host Charlotte McDonald alongside Halima Farouk. Uh, and today we are finishing uh, our last uh, guest episode in this series, which has been our first series. Thank you very much for joining us. Before uh, we finish the series off, uh, Halima and I are going to do a couple of short uh, episodes just discussing mm-hmm. uh, what we've learned so far a little bit about um, updating um, you on where we are as well and our journeys uh, and what uh, what we've learned along the way but before we get to that uh, today's episode uh, we welcome our lovely guest Lorraine Lally. Lorraine's a member of the Bar of Ireland uh, and is a practicing barrister with over 12 years experience across uh, all areas of law. She's a qualified mediator and also an active uh, member of the National Register for mediators. On top of that she's also a member of the Order of the Malta Ambulance Corps um, and she's currently vice chair of the Galway Disability Forum which is part of the Galway uh, County Public Participation Network. On top of that uh, she's also involved in advocacy campaigns for the National Women's Council of Ireland, Disability Federation of Ireland, the Neurological Alliance of Ireland and Epilepsy Ireland. We don't normally reveal what you have before, but that gives a little indication of what today's episode is going to be about. She also is a legal advisor with the Community Law and Mediation Centre in Coolock and in Limerick. Um, and also as part of the International Bureau of Epilepsy, she's the co-chair of the International Youth Team, which has members from all over the world. She's an independent member of the board appointed through public recruitment and currently chairperson of the Safeguarding Subcommittee, which is quite an introduction. Um, but welcome, Lorraine, to the podcast. It's lovely to have you on. That's lovely to be here, Charlotte. Oh, th- yeah, thank you so honestly, much. <laughs> honestly, I think that's the probably longest introduction we've ever had. And I'm quite, I'm really happy that yeah. uh, we are ending the podcast series on a high with such a, um amazing guest. Um, uh, yes, I'd like to jump straight in, Lorraine, and ask, um, you know, what brought you to the bar? What what made you want to be um, a barrister? And I'd, I'd quite be, I'd be really interested to know what the route is um, to becoming a barrister in Ireland, as well as obviously what brought you to the bar. Well, it's kind of interesting, actually. I was supposed to do nursing in Trinity <laughs> College Dublin, and what happened was I spent my summer in my hometown of Galway and I was working as a nurse's aide because I'm a member of the Order of Malta so I'm pretty handy with with dealing with bed sores and injuries and all that. I've been doing that since I was a kid so I went to work at the largest public nursing home in Galway City and it's now closed thank God but when I was in there at the age of 16 the stuff that I saw um, absolutely terrified me. People used to leave their relatives there people who were there for short stay, they got left there. They got hip replacements. They were dumped by their family in, in a public nursing mm-hmm. home. And then we had the additional distress of the fact there weren't enough nurses. So I was asked to do things I wasn't completely comfortable with, but I did them anyway because people were mm-hmm. in pain and they needed to be moved and they needed to be helped. I was willing to help anyone who needed help. But I realized after that summer, I said, I can't be a nurse. I can't be part of this system. The system is broken. The system is very dysfunctional. The system is not functioning for anyone, for nurses, for patients, for staff. Like the nurses were telling me how broken and and downhearted they were with the system and how isolated and lonely they felt. They felt like nobody was listening to them. And I thought about it and I thought, actually, would I be better off doing something else? And um, I don't know why law kind of appealed to me. I think I wanted to see if I could change things. I kept thinking, you know, health and safety and basic human dignity. 
didn't exist mm-hmm. in our health system. I don't know if it does now, but the health and safety side of it is still terrifying to me. And the, the dignity piece is something that we forget about, that people have a right to die with dignity. They have a right to live with dignity. They have a right to be cared for with dignity. And I think that may be why I went down the, the route of studying law and then going on to the bar, because being an advocate is the greatest mm-hmm. greatest opportunity you can have to change things it's the most wonderful gift that you can be part of actually because as an advocate it doesn't work unless you have someone to advocate for so without the clients the advocates don't exist as far as I'm concerned so I wanted to be an advocate because I saw people who had no voice and I saw people whose families had left them society had left them and I, I always kind of think of that I think back to those days at the age of 16 and realizing how wrong it was and and thinking I'm 16, I, I can't change this. I can't change it. Yeah. So, you know, that idea of being an advocate really calls to me. And I think it's it's a rare, rare privilege to be an advocate for somebody else. I, I think that's, um, I think you've sort of, you know, hit the, the nail on the head again. Um, that's really fitting. And, and it sort of just explains everything, how you, you saw something and you're like, that don't sound right. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to do something about it. So it's, it's such a cliche word to just say, I want to help people. But she actually says that actually, why not? Why not say that if that's the reason that you do it? And um, yeah, it's interesting to have that um, that swap, that career swap um, as a background. Because uh, yeah, having had a, a family who were, um, my mum in particular was was a nurse and still teaches nursing to this day. So um, it's interesting to hear yeah, you go from one profession to the other. So that's an interesting uh, interesting spot. Lorraine, um, could you tell us more about your your disability and how, what that entails, and um, whether you how long you've had it, and what the sort of you know parameters around it is. Um, so my disability has been with me since I was born. Uh, I was a premature baby, so I was born two months early. Um, my poor mother. I was the first child, and. Um, she really suffered in fairness to her god help her um this is in the west of ireland so there was no neonatologist there was no um there was no spare incubator either when i was born so it was kind of touch and go for a bit and um i developed epilepsy as a child and there's a good chance i had it before i got diagnosed i got diagnosed at about seven and a half eight um with the epilepsy but i was having probably those kind of absent seizures as a child um, and I was letting go of things. I'd be holding a bowl of cereal. I must have broke about seven or eight bowls in the morning. Mornings were always the worst. I'd just let go of the bowl. I'd forget I was holding it and it'd be gone. That'd be it. And I'd have no memory of it. So those kind of absent seizures, or they call them focal seizures now, um, I would have had them as a child. And with epilepsy as a child, it's hard because you're also seeing kind of auras. And I also had kind of migraine headaches. And I discovered mm-hmm. a few years ago that they were actually a type of seizure. So I was misdiagnosed partly as well by a doctor who said, you know, they're migraines. And later I was told by a neurologist, no, he said, you are having this type of seizure that linked migraines with, you know, also the stomach discomfort and stuff you're feeling. So um, epilepsy is the most common neurological condition there is. But um, as with a lot of disabilities, and one statistic always stays with me, 80% of adults with disabilities develop their disability over the age of 18. So we're kind of in a minority, people who've had it as children. We have a different experience of the world and society um, when you grow up with something. Because in many ways, you're lucky 
because you don't know any different. You always had it mm -hmm. and it's part of you. And then you're faced with a choice as an adult. Do you accept it or do you not? Um, but as a child, I found it very hard. I, I did wonder if I could succeed in school, if I could concentrate. And I suppose I was very lucky with my parents. You know, they were telling me to try my best and not to worry about it. And I remember even doing my final year exams, uh, the first or second day, my father said to me, he said, listen, he said, if you don't want to go back in, we, we'll just forfeit the money. Just we'll go to the cinema, we'll go for a walk, you know, it doesn't matter. Don't let the exams or this kind of social structure put any pressure on you because it does not really matter what exam mark you get in an exam. You know, what impact is that going to have on the quality of your life or the choices you make? Education is part of it, but it's not the key element of it. And I think my parents probably knew that, but I was supported throughout my education by my parents who consistently went to bat for me with teachers. And, you know, my parents mm -hmm. consistently argued with them. Anytime I go back to school after the parent-teacher meetings, I was getting funny treatment. And I'd come home mm -hmm. and I'd say to them, tell me what happened, you know? And, and the stories were hilarious. Basically, my parents got into arguments with the teachers. <laughs> I find funny now but I suppose having a parent who believes in you as a child with a disability makes a difference and I, I do see that now my parents had faith in me they thought I would succeed they believed I would mm -hmm. and that belief paid off for me um, and yeah. I'm very grateful for it so uh, interesting statistic that you said which I yes. always feel like I'm in the minority um, and so for, you know, I, I know people you know, like Lima who, who have had conditions for much longer than me and I I felt like, yeah, being someone who's developed it later in life, I'm, I'm the, the odd one out. And so actually to hear that statistic was, was fascinating. Um, but I wonder if you, we've had someone on the podcast before with epilepsy. Um, could you explain your type of epilepsy uh, a little bit more? I can. Um, so I have the full tonic clinic seizures, the one where you collapse to the ground and start shaking, you're hurting up and you're shaking, you know, you start shaking. But I was a little fortunate when I when I started studying law, I had a full tonic clinic seizure in the library at one stage studying for my exams. And after that, everyone knew I had, I was, I had epilepsy. And I even had one when I was in the King's Inns in Dublin and I was doing my training. Um, at some point I, I collapsed and had a seizure and that was not a good experience. If you ever come to Dublin and Henrietta Street in Dublin where the uh, King's Inns is, it's an old building. So it's like something mm -hmm. from Jane Austen's time with like, you know, cellars and then all the flights upstairs and everything. Like one of those grand old houses. It's all, um, it's all like stone steps. So it's hard mm -hmm. to fall on that. <laughs> I was badly <laughs> bruised, I can tell you, as a result of that. So um, that building as well, when I was a student there, it was not wheelchair accessible, which I took serious mm -hmm. issue with. I'm not in a wheelchair now, but I was in a wheelchair as a child um, as a result of having viral um, meningitis. Um, so I was, I've been unlucky with some of the things I've experienced, but you know, fortunately enough, they didn't know at the time if I would get my legs back, but I did. So when I look at buildings now, I look at these things and I think, are we being inclusive? So it did bother mm -hmm. me when I was a student. I remember saying it to the administration and they said to me, but it's a listed building. And I said to them, but you could put in a wooden ramp or something that, you know, wouldn't change the nature of the building. There has to be a way mm -hmm. to facilitate people. You can't just mm -hmm. say it's a listed building. That's it. You know, um, mm -hmm to keep these buildings from Jane Austen's time it's, it's insane mm -hmm. it's not it's not it's not a fair reasonable um argument to make in these types of situations because what you're saying to people then is I don't care that you have a disability I don't care that for example you could be over the age of 18 and have a horrible car accident or you could 
get sick over Christmas and, and end up with a virus and, and not recover fully, you know. So I think that lack of foresight and inclusion is, is disappointing with some of these things. But um, the interesting thing that happened when I was in the Kings as well is I had a classmate who had a guide dog. I think he was the first person there, the guide dog as well. So it was interesting. Um, I know that when I collapsed and had the seizure, the worry they seemed to have was that I was going to sue them or something, um, <laughs> which I find funny in hindsight. But um, I remember they were tiptoeing around me and I said to them, but sure, I'm entitled to reasonable accommodation. I have a legal mm-hmm. entitlement under the Irish Constitution, under our law here. We have legislation very strong on this. You can't punish me for my condition. You have to accommodate me. But it was a very strange conversation I had with them. For a room full of lawyers, it was a very strange conversation. Sometimes even those who are you know, lawyers or acting for people with conditions, mm-hmm. sometimes are the ones that forget about you know, fellow people or accessibility and things like that. And mm-hmm. uh, what, what causes your, your seizures? Are there, is it something specific? Uh, basically my my brain is badly formed from birth so um when i was a child they showed me an mri scan one side of my brain was really badly formed and the other side was perfect so it was um the doctor showed me the scan and he said to me this is your brain this is a normal brain and i said to him that side of my brain it's all shriveled and doesn't look well and he said no it's not well um so it's actually structural deformity in my brain and they thought that um they thought a few years ago that I could have maybe it was possible in my people have brain surgery and that they could stop the seizures. And I was debating it, you know, should I go for this? Should I not go for this? Um, at the moment I have seizures in my sleep and um, that's not nice because you go to bed and you have a seizure in your sleep and you wake up in the morning, you got to drag yourself out of bed and sleep deprivation causes seizures. Mm-hmm. So it's like a vicious mm-hmm. cycle mm-hmm. where you're going to bed and you could be having a seizure in your sleep and you know, you don't know what to do but the bizarre thing that happened with the brain surgery thing was when they did all the tests on my brain and they did a functional MRI on my brain the brain surgeon came back to me after they did all these tests all these tests were done and they did a PET scan and after the PET scan he said to me he said I was going to cut out part of your brain he said but it lit up like a Christmas tree so the part of your brain that was damaged he said it's kind of healed itself (laughs) and he didn't know how and he didn't know why and he said to me you can't have surgery said I'm sorry he said nobody's gonna operate in your brain nobody and um I remember thinking okay is this is this it for me is there any other options and then a few years ago they brought in the um, medicinal cannabis program in Ireland and I, mm-hmm. I've got kind of that drug resistant epilepsy so I've been taking the CBD oil and it really helps with the sleep and stuff and it has improved things for me so it has made a huge difference um and I know it's not available to everyone because you have to pay for it and it's expensive but um, it did make a huge difference to me. So it would be supporting legalizing it for medical conditions like, you know, um, drug res- resistant epilepsy. I know some parents who are buying it for their kids and they're paying out of pocket and they're borrowing money from their credit union to buy it. And, you know, crazy things that you're hearing and you're thinking if it could help them sleep or stop the seizures, you know, surely they'd do it. But um, the government are resisting it and the cost of it since they started doing these programs has actually went up, I think, eight times. 800 percent so cpd oil 20 years ago being bought anywhere in the world was much cheaper than what it is now it's much more expensive for some reason i'm not sure why but they have increased the price so um i would love to see governments investing in it or just even making it locally and giving it to people that would make more sense to me they take out all the the hallucinogenic stuff and it's just basically um purest form of it really but it just helps you sleep 
um, helps me sleep anyway. But um, uh, if I may, I'd like to take you back a little bit and uh, talk about um, your schooling life. But I'd like to pair that up with university. So I, you, you mentioned that um, when you were at school, your parents, you know, would sort of get back and forth with the teachers. Um, I'd, I'd be quite interested to know more about that. But I think you also mentioned that you used to be a wheelchair user. Were you a wheelchair user when you were in school? And, you know, until what age um, did that you know where you then did you stop being a wheelchair user so I'd, I'd quite like to know about your you know your education side of things and how that worked with um your disability or disabilities at the time i i think the school experience i i live in a rural part of ireland so the school i went to as a child was a three-person school it was like a hundred people in my school and the year I started in the school in 1990 the school was a hundred years old so we had the mayor come to the school and I was one of the youngest pupils and I would have started school at four four and a half um because that was the rule then you could start that young and um my parents kind of took the view or my mother did anyway definitely she, she wasn't really okay with telling people about the epilepsy because she was worried to be held against me she was worried to be discriminated against she was worried to be treated differently Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand where she was coming from because as a child you don't understand the stigma side of it and I didn't fully understand it when I became a teenager I think I got it a bit more so I was mm -hmm. about kind of seven eight when they told well, when they realized I had epilepsy and then there was a big discussion do you tell the teachers do you not tell the teachers my teachers are very good um it didn't really change the way they taught me they were just kind of more concerned about if she has a seizure in school what do we do what what do we do? Like, what's the first aid treatment? Um, you know, putting me in the recovery position, making sure I'm breathing, calling an ambulance if I get, you know, if I go anyway worse or if I injure myself or hit my head or something. Um, again, strangely enough, in my primary school, one of the teachers, his daughter was was disabled and she was in the school and another teacher had a son with an intellectual disability in our school so i was very fortunate that in this small three teacher school where there was two or three classes in a room they were very inclusive and that inclusivity mm -hmm. and diversity was visible and they didn't make any excuses for it or any qualms of it but um, and they didn't make a big deal about my my disability either which i thought was interesting looking back now there wouldn't have been the same issues around insurance or concern or, you know, what happens if mm -hmm. she gets injured? What happens if, you know, something happens to her on the premises and, you know, the board of management need to be told and all this, you know, they didn't seem to have any of those concerns that you hear of now that parents say to me, you know, particularly parents, if the child has an, an emergency medication, they can take like Bocomidaz, which is, um, Medication I have myself, which is if I feel a seizure coming on, I can basically put a syringe into a little bottle and I can put it in kind of just in um, under my tongue and it will stop the seizure. So it's an emergency medication that stops seizures. And very often children who have epilepsy will have that medication in the school with them now. Um, it wasn't there when my day and the Irish government only added it, I think, to the national kind of medication program not that long ago so um they, they give it to you for free it's covered by the state scheme so it's all free all epilepsy medications are free in ireland except for that cpd oil one that i mentioned so mm -hmm. i would have got all my treatments free is all the medication free even now as an adult doesn't matter how much money you have in ireland you'll get that you'll get those drugs for free so um 
you know, I, I was lucky as a child. I think the teachers didn't make a big deal about it. I was in school with one of my siblings who's a year and four months younger than me. If they were ever worried about me, I think they would have probably called her over and said, listen, can you check on her? I'm pretty sure my sister at that point would have started pinching me or something. He's still alive. Wake up. You're looking for attention. Come on. Back to reality. Come on. Come on. Come on, will you? <laughs> Stop, will you? <laughs> you know, so I think um, I'm not sure the teachers back then had any understanding like they do now. Um, I think there is an education piece to be done around it because I think very often they don't know what a seizure looks like in a child and the child could be just spacing out looking out the window and I would have those types of seizures as well where I'd be staring ahead or get a weird deja vu feeling and I could lose time and it doesn't happen that often um, but my auras are quite good and quite lucky and I can feel a, a full tonic clonic seizure like the one where you, your body starts seizing I can feel that come on so I'm very lucky in that respect I, I've yet to collapse in the high court and in front of everyone it could still happen someday I've no doubt about that but so far I've been very blessed with with work and stuff and people did ask me um, and teachers asked me as well throughout, you know, why are you putting yourself under this stress? Why are you putting yourself under this pressure? You know, some of them used to say to me, you know, you could do, you could do a different type of course. You could, um, you could always do a different type of work. You know, would you really have to put yourself through that? Why, why would you do that to yourself? And anyone who's done law exams, and you two have done law exams, including the, the entrance ones and all of that, it is a long road. It's a very long road and there's a lot of exams involved. And when I think about it now, I've got like, what, two, two degrees, two masters and look, God knows what else in between. So I, I think when you think about it, you think, why would you do this to yourself? But the other side to it is if you have a neurological condition like I have, I have a responsibility to my brain to keep my brain working and my brain will work best. And for my overall brain health, your brain never stops learning. So everyone I've talked to has told me this. Um, neuropsychologists and, and neurologists alike say that by learning and constantly, you know, doing different things, learning different languages, trying different things, you can only improve your brain health by doing those things. So I suppose in some ways I, I was hoping that if I just kept studying and kept learning that it would help and it would make me better and, and it would help me as well to build up our resilience to the seizures. Um, I never thought I could stop them. I've kind of accepted now that I may never stop the seizures, um, which was a big thing for me actually, because that kind of surrendering to the lack of control piece is, is huge for people because with epilepsy, you have no control. So that lack of control drives people crazy. So I've just kind of accepted it now at this point and it is what it is. And, and you know, there is a risk because I have seizures in my sleep there's an increased chance that I could die of, of SUDEP. So sudden unexplained death in an epileptic person, I'm at increased risk. And the fact that I'm a woman as well, I'm at risk apparently. So they've told me this, the doctors, they said, listen, if you die in your sleep, and I said to them, well, if I die in my sleep, I die in my sleep. Like you're not, not much good to me there. You know, <laughs> when it comes down to that, they can't stop it. So um, people with epilepsy, adults with epilepsy do live with that. And similarly, some of the children, there is a risk. So... Um, you do what you can um, to, to manage with it. But um, the whole being in a wheelchair thing that you mentioned, that was for a very short time, actually. I was very lucky. Um, I basically uh, went to the hospital and go with my grandmother and they, three doctors told her I was okay. And they said, take her home. 
she's got a she's got a flu, she's got a virus, she's got a bad cold, bad flu. Uh, take her home, she'd be grand. She had me wrapped in a woolen blanket. I had a fever. I was delusional. I was not well. Three doctors told her, go home with her. My grandmother had 13 children. And my grandmother said to the doctor, there is something wrong with this child. There is something wrong with this child. <laughs> and thank God, one of the doctors, he recognized her from when she had all her kids, one of the guys who worked in the gynecology side of it. And he actually said to her, here, I'll, get, I'll call in the, the pediatrician, take a look at her. And when the pediatrician came in, it was then they kind of, they realized that I had symptoms of viral meningitis. And it wasn't until I read my file, actually, my hospital file when I was 17, I read my file. My, pedi- my pediatrician let me read it, actually. He's so funny. A Scottish man. And he said, I said to him, I want to read my file. I want to read all of this. I want to make sense of all of this. I said, because my memories as a child are very disjointed. And you want to understand everything you've been through. And my parents are so funny because I'm the eldest and I have others younger than me. So for my parents, they couldn't always be there. They couldn't always know what was going on. Because I remember reading the file and then telling my parents, my my father's looking at me going, oh, was that what it was? (laughs) Did that really happen? He's just kind of looking at me. And all he remembers from all these trips to the hospital is you're okay. You came out, you're fine, you're better. He, He just, the rest of it is like a blur to him. And he's like, but sure, you're fine. All he was ever focused on was getting you better. And that once you were better, it's like never happened. You know, this mm-hmm. kind of selective parental memory of, because my, my father once said to me, he said, it's terrifying. If you have a child that's sick, it just paralyzes you. You, you don't know what to do. You're helpless. You're completely vulnerable. So I think that the feeling a parent has, you know, again, for my parents, they didn't like talking about it. They didn't want to answer my questions. And they, they often told me, my mother used to say to me, "At ah, such a long time ago. Would you ever just let go? Let go. <laughs> Why yeah. do you want to know? Why do you want to understand? Why? And the reason you want to understand is because you have a condition you've no control over. And that curiosity mm-hmm. is there and you want to understand it and you want to know all your history. So, um, well, we'd, we'd like to know how uh, life has been um, at the bar uh, and, and, and how um, you found uh, whether disclosing your disability to your peers or in court um, and also, you know, legal, just, just legal setting and, and, your, and your medical condition. How, how do they sort of correlate and how has your experience been? I think initially I never intended to tell people at all. And when I came down to the the law library, I would have been um, about 24. And I was thinking, I'm just not going to tell people. It's hard enough for women. It was was not a great time. We went down in 2010 and we kind of had the economic crash. And I had been doing work, some volunteering work with the Citizens Information Bureau. And I literally entered the law library in Dublin and people who've been practicing for years had overextended themselves on mortgages. They were struggling financially and they actually needed my help, my citizens' information help in filling out um, applications for mortgage interest relief and, and other supports. So I actually found myself thrown in there and it was interesting seeing these men who were my father's age and they had made bad economic decisions and now they were faced with a reality of do I continue as a barrister or do I apply for a state job because I've got you know eight or ten years experience do I go into the civil service at this point because I have to pay my debts and I have to just get my house in order and I have to kind of come from this dream I've been in where you know the work will keep flowing 
Um, so it was interesting to see the kind of two worlds collide when I went down to the law library because my family would be kind of more working class. So for me, it was interesting seeing these people who to me had had more than enough, but they wanted more. And then they were down there and I was wondering, okay, they didn't seem to have the awareness or the openness about medical things. So I thought, okay, I'll leave it. I'm going to just not say anything and not make a big deal about it. And I'll tell a few people who I trust are good friends of mine. Um, and I talked to some of the people down there about it. Um, part of our kind of devil family, I suppose. Um, the person I deviled for at first year, I was his 13th devil. So there was loads of us and there was people ahead of me. So some of them, any of my stupid questions, any of the questions where I was like, I, I can't, I don't know about this. We had these devil brothers and sisters who would help us out and you'd be like, well, I, I've been asked to do this. And, do you know, do I still need this additional um, declaration for that application or, you know, what, what do I need to do? So I think a lot of my stupid questions I put to my peers at that point and I was thinking, I don't know what to do about this. And I didn't have the language either. I suppose if you had been disclosing to people your whole life, you'd have the language to have that conversation. And I did not have the language. I had language for, I don't know, um, uh, summary summonses and plenary summonses and, and other things in my head and I, I didn't know how to, to align the two. Um, I did feel a bit afraid though that if I had a seizure in there would I put somebody in an uncomfortable position? Would I leave someone very vulnerable? Because being a member of the Order of Malta I've treated seizures, I've seen lots of seizures particularly on rugby pitches where rugby players would drop maybe two or three times and have really bad seizures and lose bladder control and you have to take care of them, you have to treat them it's frightening to see somebody have a seizure. It's very distressing. So do you want to put one of your work colleagues through that? Do you want to put them in a position where they're afraid for you, where they're actually, you know, a little bit scared afterwards, you know? And I decided then to tell some of the people like that I was working with every day. I kind of mentioned it to some of them uh, just to make them aware more than anything else. And then they said to me, what do I do if it happens? And I told them what they needed to do first aid wise. And then I said to them, this is where I'm going to put my emergency contact details as well. And, you know, put them down at the reception desk as well and different places. And the staff were very discreet and I, they were very kind, actually. And I, I wasn't so sure because a place is like a rumor mill, as you know, within the legal profession, everybody knows everything. So mm. I wasn't sure privacy was even possible down there, to be honest, because they seem to know everything about everyone. So, um, but people were very, very kind. And then when I was um, about two, three years in practice, I decided to take part in a national campaign in Ireland. And I was actually interviewed for a national newspaper, which was interesting. And um, after that happened, I got reactions from people in different ways. Um, some of it was a bit hurtful, actually, at the time. It was a bit upsetting. Um, some people said to me, you know, you won't get any more state work. People won't want to hire you. Why, do, why did you tell people? What are you looking to achieve here? Are you looking for mm -hmm. a sympathy vote, is it? You want someone to give you a cuddle, do you? Like, what exactly are you looking for here from us? Like, what, what do you want? And I was looking at them saying, I don't want anything from you. I, I've got to the point where I'm accepting my condition, but I wanted other people to know they could still do things. They could still have careers. They could still have a life. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. So that people yeah. know not to let their dreams die because they've got a diagnosis, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah. then I had the opposite with other people. Other people took me aside and said, you know, 
well done and I think you know you're really great and other people then told me that their spouses had epilepsy other colleagues of mine told me their children had epilepsy they were really struggling in school they were getting bullied um somebody else was telling me about her nephew who was fired from a supermarket for having a seizure at work so all of a sudden it opened up all these conversations and I, I until the day I die I will remember the people who were quite cruel to me at the time and I remember looking mm-hmm. at them thinking in your old age now, if you get Parkinson's or you get MS, because I've got uncles and aunts with MS, mm-hmm. how, how do you feel then, you know, when you have something you have no control over and, and somebody treats you the way you treated me, you know? So I think there is the education piece. We do need to educate people. I don't know if any of those people realized the impact what they said had on me. It was very upsetting. And I remember thinking, have I made a big mistake here? Did I miscalculate? You know, am I going to be forever branded as the dysfunctional epileptic barrister in the law library you know and it didn't happen actually never did so um I did survive disclosing my disability um I don't know if it's had an impact on me as as a practitioner because I think when I went down to the law library my gender wasn't as much of an issue as my age was some of the clients would be looking at you going Mm -hmm. my sons are all older than you and you'd be like yes Mm -hmm. sir yeah I would expect that yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't take away from my qualifications it doesn't take away from my knowledge I used to say to some of them let me go in and try and get the order for you if I can't get the order for you maybe one of my colleagues can I said we don't give up on the first try I said you don't walk away from a soccer match in the first 10 minutes you know so some of these people it's it's putting it that way for them and then some of them would say to me well actually I was surprised watching you you know and and that kind of surprise is constantly happening for some of them because there is this idea they look at you and they think there she is a little woman a barrister person and you still have people could call me little woman barrister Uh, (laughs) and you still get that because I'm not five foot so I am the little woman barrister and you just have to embrace some of it because you couldn't be fighting with people all the time it's exhausting and some of them as well it's meant in in kindness it's not meant with any disrespect and there is a bit of a generational thing there and very (laughs) often now some of them are asking me why I'm not married so so you think if you got married would you give it up and you're like no <laughs> but yeah, again this, this one ability, thing after the next yeah it is it's just never ending it's never ending mm-hmm. and you know I, I would say to women and I say this to women now a lot I think you're seeing kind of this area of discrimination on the grounds of gender discrimination on the grounds of nationality discrimination on the grounds of ability and disability this kind of second third tiered discrimination you know I often say to people it's actually double discrimination, triple discrimination. We're really putting up barriers for some people. Some people are very isolated. And um, I think then when I went down to practice, I think that's why I ended up practicing in the area I was practicing in because as a first year devil in 2010, the first cases I got were for the Refugee Appeals Tribunal. And the person I was training with didn't do refugee law. And the reason I got the cases was I'd done a master's in international human rights law in Galway before I went down to the bar. And some people in Dublin had remembered me from conferences and from speaking on, on issues around child soldiers, on conflict, on, on the rights of children, uh, particularly migrant children, traffic children. And when they saw I went down to the law library, they instantly said to me, you have to take these cases. And I say to them, but I'm not even training in this area. The guy I'm training with is not doing any of this. And they used to say to me, there's no way you could be as bad as some of the people on the legal aid scheme. They said, we will pay you 
I'm serious. Like, and then I started meeting my clients from Zimbabwe, South Africa, Lebanon, um, everywhere, Afghanistan, Sudan, Syria, um, Azerbaijan, um, God, everywhere in the world you could imagine. I've met people from at this stage, but when I started doing it, it was very funny. And my master was very supportive, actually. It was very funny. And I told him we had a big um, meeting with a client, a corporate client. And I said to him, mm-hmm. um, I have, I have a, a refugee here in, at two o'clock. It's just across the river. I have the file and everything. I have everything prepared. I'm ready to go and do my oral arguments. I've done my written submissions. You know, I was on the ball and um, he was looking at me and he was like, you got your first brief. I was like, yeah, yeah. So then he was telling the instructor solicitor, my little devil, she's only down 10, 12 weeks. She's after getting her own brief. Would you look at her? She's great. She's wonderful. And the solicitor was saying to her, what is it like? Is it something civil? Is it something commercial? Is it, you know, we were doing a construction case, pyrite in houses, you know? And he goes, oh God, I don't know what it's about. I, I do know she's, she's, she's very Catholic. <laughs> And I remember laughing because he was Protestant and we were always making these Catholic Protestant jokes. But I think to people listening, they actually probably thought it was being mean to me. <laughs> he used to say to me, you're a bleeding heart Catholic. And I used to say to him, well, you're, you're a very tight Protestant. <laughs> you know, and we'd be making jokes, you know, and I think people didn't understand, but it was very funny. And he was very proud of me then when I, when I got, and they stopped my first few deportation orders. He was saying to me, how did it go? And I was like, well, yeah, they, they haven't issued a deportation order. They're going to put a stay on one of them and, and the other one, they're, they're not going to issue it. So, you know, it's good. And, and then I started going into the high court then dealing with some of the deportation orders and he was equally proud of me then. He was saying, well, this is interesting. He said, well, at least you've gone from the place down by the river to an actual court. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's a bit of progression because, you know, some areas of law aren't that well appreciated or well respected. And I think when I started in immigration in 2010, it was one of those areas where it was like people, some people did it, but there was no money in it. There was no real, I suppose, prospects of, you know, you weren't going to get like a hundred grand a year as an immigration lawyer or something, not in Ireland anyway. I don't know what happens in other countries, but you know, in Ireland, the immigration legal system is not that well funded and the clients as well for those who are illegal, they can pay you, but they can pay you over a number of years or months and a certain amount each week. And you can't really get blood out of a stone. So, you know, if you don't love it, there's no point in it. But, um, mm-hmm. The first area then I worked in was immigration. And then he did tell me at the time, my master, he said, because you're a girl, he said, they will give you family. You will get bits of family thrown at you because, because you're a girl. And I was like, he said to me, he goes, I wouldn't touch it. He said, I wouldn't take it for the life of me. Said, if, not, if you want to do it, he said, do it, you know, work away. So I suppose the system in Ireland is a bit strange in that I dealt for it with a civil master in first year. He did a lot of probate and wills and succession and construction and commercial court stuff. And then I ended up working in different areas. And then in second year, I did, um, I dealt with a criminal practitioner because I wanted to get a full rounded experience because where I'm from in Ireland is a rural area. So the courts here mm-hmm. would handle everything. So I needed a broad education it wasn't going to be good enough just to do civil because it's not like London or big cities where it could get you through I needed to be able to do anything that came my way so I did civil then or did criminal then for second year and the person I trained with he's now a judge actually um we did prosecution and defense work and he just did mainly criminal um he was a former guard a former police officer himself and then he, he trained to join the bar and um 
he had a bit of a civil practice and personal injuries. And I think that was the reason why he kind of wanted me, actually, because he said, well, you've done all this PI stuff before. You can just do all the PI stuff for me and then just I'll send out the fee notes. And you're like, okay, yeah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So, um, you know, I did uh, work with him and then I did a bit of criminal um, legal aid stuff because all the barristers, all the kind of baby toddler barristers, you do criminal legal aid to kind of feed yourself and the money is really bad in Ireland. They have the fees the year I went down in 2010. So a remand was 25 euro and a bail application was 50 euro. I think it's still the same now, actually. It's, it's not great. But on a Monday morning, if you got eight or ten remands, it would kind of carry you through. And then you'd go to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, kind of getting scraps where you could. And um, I, I liked the criminal work. But the only problem with the criminal work and my epilepsy was there was no break from the criminal work. So even yeah. at Christmas time, I would be getting phone calls Christmas Eve. You know, some drug dealer is bottled some lad and he wants to get out of, he wants to bail application done St. Stephen's Day. And you're thinking, oh, the love of Jesus, and where's the prison? And the prisons are all in the middle of nowhere. And I don't drive mm. because of my epilepsy. So it's not really ideal. Um, in fairness to the illegal migrants, they tend to come to me. So <laughs> it, it works out all right. You know, um, um, although I have had very funny experiences as well with the migrants and the epilepsy. It's very funny. Um, one particular time uh, with that client who um, is, she was... Ethiopian it was very funny she found out I had epilepsy anyway and um somebody I don't know who told her somebody said something to her anyway and uh when she found out I had the epilepsy she started praying for me because she'd lost a few cousins in Africa to epilepsy and she was like really upset and she said to me you know you never told me you were sick you never told me you were ill you should have told me and I was saying to her no like I'm fine I'm okay like good services in Ireland were all right like I'm fine you know she's nearly in tears leaving me she's praying for me she thought we were gonna die like <laughs> and I was looking at her going you've got five children under the age of eight and you're worried about me but it's interesting because in African countries people with epilepsy do die so like I have heard this from some African um, clients of mine who said to me there's no medication available in parts of Africa there's no medication uh, available in parts of the Philippines or in parts of Ukraine now there's no medication because of the conflict so people are going to die from the seizures if they can't get the medication so um, it, it's a different world I suppose and when they come here then and, and they find out the medications are free the look on their face when they find out like in Ireland we've had legislation from 1960 the long-term mm-hmm. illness scheme and it meant that anyone with asthma got free medication anyone with diabetes got free needles and free insulin and free everything the same with with epilepsy this is from 1960 like so the Irish government realized like if you have a long-term illness you have no choice about this you have it that's it we're going to pay, we're going to give you treatment, we're going to make the treatment free for you. But for some some clients of mine, it's very funny, they keep looking at me going, I, I want to pay for it. And you're like, no, you can't. There's no <laughs> provision for you to pay for any of this. You have to just take it, take it, take the card and take the treatment. And some of them would be illegal. And they'll say to me, but I'm illegal. And I said, it doesn't matter. I said, your child has diabetes. This is for your child. Your child gets the treatment. This is not America. This is Ireland. We don't, we don't engage in this crazy behavior of other countries where you're putting a price on everything. It's not right. You know, you have a long-term mm. illness or a long-term condition. You have no choice over it. Like nobody chooses these things. But yeah. uh, the migrants thing, it's interesting. I love the, the migrant view on some of it. It's very funny. 
and I still laugh about some of it because like some of these people brain for me and some of them like one woman was HIV positive with the pneumonia and she was praying for me you're like I, I don't know now <laughs> I need the prayers to be honest but, you know and then you don't want to insult you don't want to you don't want to insult people either like I did have one mm -hmm. woman who wanted to give a donation to fundraising and I said to her you know you don't need to give the money I said you've lots of small children I said stop like then she kept saying to me she said no she said it's my money I can give it I said fair enough I said it is your money you're right you know and, and that idea of giving the people that dignity that respect as well the interpretation of the situation I suppose it's it's different for everyone you know their interpretation Absolutely. of me that I know and they're entitled to that for you and I will take all the prayers they they want to send I have said this to them God yeah. is good as the Muslim kinds continually tell me God is good <laughs> and they, I tell them I will accept prayers in all languages I had no discrimination here <laughs> no absolutely sure just because I realize that some people listening especially if they're new might not know what deviling is would you just very yeah just one, one line quick summary just to explain what deviling is okay um deviling is it's meant to be what we call pupillage now we changed the word a few years ago okay. but it hasn't really sank in yet and we took this pupillage word from the uk i think and we originally took the oh. deviling word from the uk but in ireland we still use the word devil and and deviling and we would often talk about you know our junior colleagues um, we, we would refer to them as junior colleagues. You wouldn't really, when you're deviling at the time, you're at a certain level. Um, and we do some of the lists in the High Court in Ireland are done based on seniority. So you go to the end of the some queues with the registrar. If you're a first year devil or a third year devil, you have to get your place in the queue. And it doesn't matter if you're a nine month pregnant woman in that queue, you take your place in the queue based on the year you're called and you just accept it. Right. So it's based on seniority. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I suddenly realised I've never heard yeah. of noun either. So when people like when you were saying devil, I was like, I, I know, I know what you mean. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Thank you. And then you, you've also mentioned the law library. Yeah. I think in in Ireland, in the High Court in Ireland, in the Four Courts, we have this place called the Law Library. It's an actual location. It's an actual library, and there's a load of desks in it. And um, there's about two thousand six hundred barristers practicing in Ireland. So we would all usually train there for most of our, our first year and the law library it's kind of like um in the uk you have these chambers we don't have chambers in ireland we're all independent contractors we're all uh, independent um practitioners so the law library for us is a location but we'd also describe it as a place where we go to train um it's where we all gather and only barristers are allowed to step into the law library so if you do come to dublin you'll be allowed to step in but no outsiders, no members of the public, no solicitors, nobody else. Only people allowed in there are barristers. And if anybody tries to get in, they can't. You need, you need two cards to get in. So it's beyond secure for Brilliant. obvious reasons, you know? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, before we uh, go into our sort of final three roundup questions, um, just because we mentioned in your intro, would you talk to us a little bit about some of your campaign work um, and what sort of, Key points you think is important for that or you'd like people to take away from it um i suppose the campaign work i've done around creating awareness around epilepsy um i i really enjoyed working nationally in ireland with epilepsy ireland and, and the disability federation around epilepsy affects a lot of people all age ranges all nationalities all races all religions and it also there's a link with epilepsy and people with autism as well. And we've seen this with some of the conferences and stuff that we've held. Um, and there is this kind of neurodivergent 
uh, awareness in, in universities now as well, where they're catering for people who are neurodiverse and that there's more kind of, I suppose, information out there than before. Um, recently, I've been working on campaigns with the Neurological Alliance of Ireland to campaign for more neurology nurses. Ireland has led the way with neurology nurses. We have realised, as everyone who has a working brain will realise, nurses are the key to a health system success, not doctors. So in Ireland, we've led the way with epilepsy nurses, specially trained epilepsy nurses, not um, not neurologists or any other consultant-led uh, system. We want a nurse-led system in Ireland. So we want epilepsy nurses, nurses for Parkinson's, nurses for MS. We want nurses to be supporting people because the nurses have the relevant skills and abilities that doctors don't have. And when I say that, I mean around effective communication, empathy, compassion, kindness, uh, spending time with family members and supporting people with who are newly diagnosed because we do have a difficulty with that. Doctors don't have the time or I would say some of them don't have the skills to support people in those sorts of situations where they're transitioning. I've often spoken with, I've spoken with consultants from all over the world and I'm currently taking part in um, a set of guidelines around epilepsy care that's going to be uh, international with doctors from all over the world. And what we see when we come together is we have patient advocates and consultants. And what we see is that the consultants and the patient advocates identify different issues as their main issues. So it's like we're speaking a different language. The doctors don't see the things that trouble us, that bother us around uh, social integration, around progressing uh, as a person and, and overall of impacts on daily life and daily living. Some of those experiences are not, not part of the medical process and they're not part of the medical system. So what we need to do is we need to change the, the health system and we need to start with hearing from the patients, patient-led approach to all sorts of care and I would say as well a nurse-led approach not a doctor-led approach it, it doesn't work. The National Women's Council of Ireland have been pushing for this as well which is women, women-informed care, patient-informed care and um, I ended up working with the National Women's Council of Ireland as well because they set up a disabled women's group because they realised that when they were looking at groups of women they reckoned that there was one group there which was disabled women that were very often not represented, not heard, not properly appreciated. And again, 20% of the population in Ireland have some sort of disability. And more than 60% of the population is female. So we are we're climbing in kind of the, the ratios. And again, there has to be representation for people who are out there. The surveys and all the research they've done, and they've done a lot of research, shows that women with disabilities are still carers. They're still mothers. They're still minding people. They have their own condition and they're still minding the whole world. So the representation of women is something that I've become very impassioned about because the research is very clear that women will battle on and they'll mind everyone else and they'll forget to think about themselves and forget to put themselves first. So the main message I want women to walk away from, whether it's epilepsy or MS or any sort of condition, you take care of yourself first. The whole world will, will survive, but you mind yourself and you remember more than anything else in the world, I always say to women, you're the most important person in the room. And they'll often say to me, no, you, you are. You're more important than me. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I said that. It's not true. You are the most important person in any room and you have to appreciate yourself and value yourself. And it doesn't matter whatever other labels people put on you. You're important and you matter. And that's really what I want people to go away with. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I mean, that 
that probably answers a little bit of one of my, my final questions. But um, I think before that, we, we usually ask two sort of final questions, which is um, what has been the best and worst experiences that you've had in regards to your condition and your legal career, whether that's something that someone has said or done um, or whether it's just something that's, that's stuck with you as, as being particularly difficult, um, whichever way around is best for you, but um, what's been something good and something uh, bad that's is stuck with you? I would say the best piece would be the people who voiced support for me, who sent me emails, who sent me cards, who sent me letters um, to say to me, you know, we're here if you need us and, you know, you're not alone. And, and that's really important to hear that, that you're not alone. And I think in the legal profession, we sometimes don't say that enough. Uh, we don't tell people, you know, you're not alone. I have something as well. And, you know, if you need someone to talk to, come and talk to me. And that offer, even you may never take them up on it, they're still offering to buy you a cup of coffee and have a chat with you. And it's the most simple, basic thing you can do for somebody. But for somebody to hear those words like, I would like to talk to you if you want to talk to me come talk to me come have a copy with me in the bar of Ireland as I'm sure in the UK is we're very proud of our spirit of collegiality and it is the best thing about the bar is that spirit of collegiality if a more junior member rang me tonight and said Lorraine I'm really worried about tomorrow this is what's going on I would make time for them straight away I'd even get up at six o'clock tomorrow morning to help them through it you know and that spirit of collegiality that support from from people more senior than yourself is vital in in practice but also in life and I I think the spirit of collegiality in the Bar of Ireland has really helped actually with my epilepsy and practicing I think probably the worst thing that happened to me was some of the negative comments I received that my competency wouldn't be appreciated, that I wouldn't get on state boards, that I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't get any state work, that I wouldn't um, progress within my profession. And that, you know, once you're labelled a person with disabilities or if you embrace that label, what are you actually doing to yourself? And what I would say to those people, and I think I could say this now to you as well, both of you here, is we're all still sisters. We're all still humans we're all part of the same family and it it doesn't have to define you nothing does but the other thing i would say to you is your disability or your condition is part of you don't mm -hmm. hate it accept it mm -hmm. grow with it and and say to it listen we're in this together you and me we're going to get through this like because the worst thing you can do is go into denial or try and hide it because it creates shame and it creates a horrible feeling. That's not good. And that's why I went out and talked about my epilepsy was, why should I be ashamed of it? I've done nothing wrong. I have done nothing wrong. And that shame and that stigma, people often tell me about it and they're crying when they do so. They say to me, I don't know how you could be open about it, but I have nothing to be ashamed of. And I have, I have immigration clients who will say to me, you know, they're HIV positive. There's no shame in that either. There is no shame in, in all the conditions that are out there. And there's no shame in, in how it came to be. So I, I think that's one of the things you need to take away. But I think some of the people who are very cruel to me, it, it did hurt at the time. And I remember thinking, they thought they were being kind. They thought they were giving me a dose of reality. They thought they were grounding me. They thought they were trying to make me aware. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm not sure what motivated them to say the things they said. Um, it, it's very cruel to speak yeah. to someone like that when they have a condition. Um, and I think it's something people should be conscious of. Like, what if that was your brother or your sister or, or your mom or your mm -hmm. dad? It's, 
you don't speak to people like that and it comes back to respect and I think that's very often what's missing basic yeah. respect and empathy you know for people so fantastic I think that yeah answers well what to, what to sort of take away um it's been a really a, yeah really fascinating episode I think what one one thing this does show is because I think you might be the first or one of two where we've had a condition talked about more than once on the podcast we've had someone come mm. up with epilepsy um before but it just goes to show how different someone's experiences can be and i'd like sort of uh, you know whether that's recruiters or uh, anyone who's um has people with disability in the workplace to know that as that you know no two conditions even if they are identical um someone deals with the mm-hmm. same or has uh, completely different stories so thank you very much very much indeed for coming on and and sharing um both that and and some fantastic uh, words of wisdom which will undoubtedly come up when we're going to do clips of uh, our, our key takeaways from from the series Absolutely. So thank you very much for being the one to round that off with some with some fantastic words of wisdom um, and it's been absolutely lovely to virtually meet you um, and, and talk with you uh, we really really appreciate you coming on thank you, thank you so much thank you um, and I know. Thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck with the podcast, guys. Well done. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Um, so to everyone who's been listening to this episode, uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. We hope that you'll join us for our finale episode um, that will come out after this one. Um, but until then, um, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Halima. Bye. Thank you for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Disabilities Not a Bar. See you in the next one. 